0: William Gibson's powerfully influential neuromancer reshaped a genre. The New Yorker recently called him the authority on the world to come, and the writer who imagined the near future more convincingly than anyone else. Now, William Gibson asked in his latest novel, Agency, what if the last three years had unfolded completely differently? What if we weren't the ones deciding our future? William Gibson's new book, Agency, is available now wherever books are sold. Hello and welcome to the Larb Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor at large for Larb, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Larb's managing editor, Medea Ocher.
1: Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. So, tell me about the show this week. So this week, we're going to be airing a conversation between Tom Lutz, who's the editor-in-chief of LARB, okay. as our listeners probably know, and Viet Tan Nguyen, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. He's the author of The Sympathizer and a collection of short stories. Most recently, he published a children's book with his son, which I believe is called The Chicken of the Sea. and think it's about a few pirate chickens. And this is a conversation that we had at an event in Silver Lake in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, um, is this a Larb Luminary dinner? This was a Larb Luminary dinner. Yes. So Viet is a Larb Luminary among his other many other accomplishments. I would say this is probably at the bottom of the list. <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't sell yourself. Oh, no. <laughs> um, i there with that pool, is, sir. Right. Well, and Viet is um as listeners will hear, is a very, very interesting man to listen to. He's very articulate. He's extremely smart. He's also a professor at USC. Mm -hmm. So not only is he uh, an accomplished fiction writer, but he is uh, an English professor. He has a PhD in uh, in English literature. Uh, I know he has, as I said, the luminary thing is probably at the bottom of that list (laughs) of that CV, but they discuss his writing the way that he approaches his work. I think I throw in a, a question there at the end really? from the audience. Oh, can't wait. Yeah. So it's a great conversation. Good. Well, let's listen to it. Let's do it.
2: I wanted to start by asking you, Biet, you say in your nonfiction book, Nothing Ever Dies you talk about your statistical luck, your bureaucratic luck of being part of the Vietnamese diaspora rather than the Haitian diaspora or any of the other kinds of diasporas that would have made it impossible for you and your family to be here. So can you talk a little bit about that bureaucratic luck?
3: Sure, absolutely. So yeah, I I count myself as being very, very lucky. You know, I was lucky for many, many reasons. The first being that I was the son of parents who were risk takers. Because my parents were born in North Vietnam in the 1930s and they grew up in a time of deep trouble in Vietnam because the country was undergoing colonization. They lived through a terrible famine in the North in the 1940s and then, of course they lived through war through the 40s and the 50s and the country was divided in 1954. And they fled as refugees for the first time then, moving from the North to the South in 1954 and then building up their lives again, and then in 1975 being forced to flee again as refugees ending up in the United States. And we were very lucky because in 1975, maybe most of us don't remember this, but the majority of Americans did not want to accept refugees from Southeast Asia for all the same reasons. Many Americans don't want to accept refugees today from any corner of the world, but Congress did the right thing as it occasionally does and decided to accept Vietnamese refugees refugees from Laos and Cambodia as well. And the reason why I think that we were lucky is because there were other refugee crises happening at the time and in the years afterwards, so of course, We remember what was happening in Haiti and Cuba and refugees trying to come across during that time period as well. In Haiti, at least, they didn't have the benefit of fleeing from a communist country. So it was politically opportune for the United States to accept refugees fleeing from a communist country as ours had become at that time. And the reason why I stress this is in my line of work as a novelist, one of the most basic skills that we have is empathy we have to learn how to empathize with all kinds of different characters, including characters who are very far removed from us by geography or culture or ideology. You know, we might have to imagine ourselves as Donald Trump, Stephen Miller, these kinds of characters, because they too are human beings, all right? I am sure they're human (laughs) beings, all right? Uh, So you would think that because you have been through an experience, you would be empathetic to other people who have undergone that experience. That is actually not true. You know, so there are actually quite a few Vietnamese refugees who are opposed to accepting more refugees at this point. And their line is, well, we were the good refugees and the people who are coming today are the bad refugees. We shouldn't take those people in. And so my response has been, no, we were not the good refugees because I grew up in a Vietnamese refugee community in San Jose, California of the 1970s and 1980s, and let me tell you something, there were a lot of bad Vietnamese refugees. <laughs> we did a lot of terrible things. All of that has been forgotten because Vietnamese refugees and past refugees benefit from not being the refugees of today. And of course, when we look at the refugees of today, for many people, it's easy to give in to our fear and our xenophobia and to imagine that these people are not assimilable and will do terrible things. Those are the same things that were being said about Southeast Asian refugees. So we were not the good refugees. We were the lucky refugees, Mm -hmm. beneficiaries of sort of an accident in American policy at that time.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned empathy because I was in Cambodia maybe 15 years ago, a while ago. And one of the things that struck me about Cambodia was that empathy seemed to have been used up. Mm-hmm. And I asked everybody, you know, how did your family fare during the Khmer Rouge? And one guy I, I will always remember said, yeah, no, we we were fine. I said, oh, that's that's great. He said, no, well, my father, you know, went away and he never came back. But, oh, and my uncle. Oh, and a bro- couple of my brothers, yeah, oh, and cousins. You know, he kind of like was remembering on the spot this kind of, like vast trauma in his mm-hmm. family that when asked, his first response was to kind of think, well, no, I'm fine, we're fine. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me that part of what your work is interested in, philosophically in the nonfiction and in the fiction as well, is what happens when trauma becomes normalized, mm-hmm. when war has been forever when trauma has been forever mm-hmm. and it touches everybody and everything. Mm-hmm. And therefore it's just background rather than foreground and empathy is evaporated as a result.
3: I don't know if empathy has been evaporated, but people have to cope. People have to cope. So the gentleman you were talking to, of course, knows that these people were lost to him forever, but unless he wants to be sitting there in his room crying and unable to move on, he has to mm-hmm. somehow compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. My example from my own experience has been that if you were to ask me what it's like to be a refugee, and I told you the truth, most of you would have no idea what to say to me because there's no quicker way to kill a cocktail party conversation than say, hey, I'm a refugee. And, you know, you go through all the trauma and all that kind of thing. So you have to make jokes about it or you have to compartmentalize it. So, for example, the things that my family went through would be, for most Americans, very shocking. We left an adopted sister behind. We lost most of the family property. My parents wouldn't see their brothers and sisters and parents for 20 to 40 years. They would lose their own parents in a remote country and not be there to be able to mourn. And these things are completely normal from the Vietnamese refugee experience. I could talk to any Vietnamese refugee and I could say any of these things and be like, yeah, that happened to us too. So when it's a normalized experience, you sort of just have to accept that those are the way that things are. That doesn't mean you're not traumatized by them, but you have to contain them Hmm. to move on. And so what that means is that a lot of people have buried trauma or they would be technically diagnosed as having PTSD, except in the Vietnamese refugee community, PTSD is not a part of the language. So instead of dealing with PTSD, you have domestic violence, you have fractured families, you have all these terrible consequences of the war and the refugee experience that people just have no other way of coping with except Mm -hmm. to take it out on each other. Mm-hmm. So the gentleman you're talking about, I have no idea what's going on in his life, but I don't imagine it's that easy. I imagine no, there's many no. other consequences and ripples. So I'll give you no. another example. Mm-hmm. So many Americans I've met have been to Vietnam, and they want to tell me that their tourist experience there was awesome, which is true. I highly recommend you all go to Vietnam no. and have a tourist experience <laughs> because now it's awesome. You know, Whatever your price level is, there's a package for you. Okay, And universally, all these Americans will say to me, I was so worried about going to Vietnam because I thought people would hate us or there'd be tensions obviously because of the war and all that. And they would all say, but the Vietnamese were so gentle and kind and friendly and smiling. And I'm like, that's because you're a tourist, okay? (laughs) And you're not Vietnamese or Chinese. If you're a Vietnamese person who goes back to Vietnam, it's a much more fraught experience because it was a civil war. And so you go back and it's not friendly. It's like an emotional minefield where people are looking at you as the refugee who has returned and their mindset is you're a fat American and you were on the other side. And we welcome you as a long lost cousin or brother, but we want your money and your guilt as well. Mm -hmm. And that's something that foreign tourists are absolved from because you represent something different. And so I think there's something analogous happening there in the Cambodian situation because Mm -hmm. if you have been through this horrifying experience, what are you going to say to somebody who is there for a week in your country? you're just gonna try to put the best face on things because there's all yeah. these other considerations going on.
2: The return of the refugee is an interesting trope, I guess you could say, as well as a fact for you, for mm-hmm. lots of people. There's a whole kind of school of novels, and you know I've studied the American novel of immigration from the 19th century through the present, so it's something that I know a little bit about. But the latest version of it, it seems to me, is the return narrative. Mm-hmm. Right. Sometimes the actual refugees return, sometimes the second generation return. So Amy Mm Fonds, the reeducation of Cherry Chuang, Mm -hmm. any number of novels and The Wangs versus the World are novels of the return. Mm -hmm. Is that simply a fact of our kind of historical economic moment in which that can happen, or is there something else going on there?
3: Well, I think there's a couple of things which one of the things we forget about our country is we, you know, part of our dominant mythology, which is in trouble, but it's still part of our dominant mythology, is that we're a country of immigrants but we forget that a lot of the immigrants who came to the United States went back to where they came from. I think something like a third of European immigrants, for example, returned to their countries of origin. We don't talk about them because they don't fit into our mythology. So if you return to your country of origin, you're a loser and we're only interested in winners and people who've picked our side so we only tell these kinds of stories so i think in the past there certainly have been people who have returned to the homeland or if we look at the experience of chinese immigrants for example in the 19th century they came here they tried to make a life for themselves but they were forbidden from bringing wives into this country after 1882 and so a lot of them went back to china and had wives there or had two families and they went back and forth but what's changed now is obviously it's much easier to do this kind of thing uh to go back and forth but also now we have a publishing industry that cares about these kinds of stories Mm. they didn't care about these kinds of stories Mm. in the 19th century but now the whole idea of the global citizen the transnational person the person with two homes that is very affirming to many of us because even if it's being done by refugees or immigrants or people of color for americans who don't happen to have any of those backgrounds it's affirming to read these kinds of stories because it affirms our identities as American global citizens who can partake of the multicultural wonders of this country and the diverse wonders of the world as well. So mm, even if these yeah. refugee return experiences might be traumatic, et cetera, they still fit into this other larger palette of the desire on the part of many Americans or Europeans to sample mm-hmm. this possibility of mobility.
2: And of course, in any list of those narratives, the last story in refugees would count, right? right? right. That's a story in which a Vietnamese man has two families, one American, one Vietnamese, one based in America, one based in Vietnam, and he gives the three kids in each family the same names. Mm And the story is the story of the, I guess it's the oldest daughter? Right. Who goes back to Vietnam, meets her sister for the first time. Who has the same name. Who has the same name. And that's based on a true story. Okay, I wondered.
3: I was just at some event, and, you know, I I like to talk to people. I like to hear what kind of stories they have. So if you talk to me, you never know what's going to make its way into the fiction. But I talked to this one young Vietnamese American woman, and she told me this exact story, that her father, they were in Vietnam, and her father had been put into re-education camp. And while he was in the re-education camp, his wife found out that he had a mistress and so she was so upset that she just left the country taking the three kids with her. So then the father eventually gets released from the re-education camp, discovers that no one's left, marries another woman, has three kids, names them after the first three kids who left the country. That's a true story. That's what I'm saying. It's like This might strike people as a strange or odd kind of situation here, but when I heard it, I was like, that is odd, but I'm not surprised that someone would do that. And so then my task as a writer was to imagine what would happen if one of these siblings met the namesake.
2: It shouldn't be surprising to anyone. Right? I mean, if in Yerevan, it felt like half the people I met had lived in Glendale previously. <laughs> it happens every place I go, it seems, that there are people that used to yeah. live in San Jose. In the Philippines, there are lots right. of people from San Jose as well. Mm-hmm. But that story had... It's a true story. So mm-hmm. It's based on this thing. But as you worked it through, what did it mean to you about return? Because she, when she returns... It doesn't end well particularly for anyone.
3: Well, I mean, there's two dimensions to a story. One is what actually happens in the story, and the other is what does a writer go through to be able to write a story. Mm-hmm. So for me to write that story, I actually had to leave Vietnam because when I was in Vietnam and I went there many times, I felt I was taking in so much new information. And everything was new to me. And that's one kind of a story. But for people who live there, that's not the story. So for example, there's a scene in the story where the Vietnamese American returns and goes to the fanciest restaurant in Saigon, which I went to, and talks briefly to the hostess who's there, a beautiful young Vietnamese woman wearing the ao yai, who if you go to Vietnam, you will encounter many of these women wearing the ao yai. And the protagonist says to her, it's such an interesting country or interesting city. And the hostess responds in exactly the same way as the hostess I talked to when I said that to her, and she was about 25 years old, And she said, no, it's really boring here. (laughs) And I thought that's, I had to get to the mindset where I could understand Vietnam as a boring country. Because if you go there as a tourist or as a returnee for the first or second time, everything's new, everything's exciting. You see the oddness of everything. But for that story and for many stories, you had to see the lifestyle there as a local person would, which is that none of these things are interesting. It reminds me of a Jamaica Kincaid, you know, a small place, yeah. you know, about tourism and in a small place, which is a great book, very short. You can all read it in a day. She takes it from the perspective of the people who are living in the small place where the tourists visit. For the tourists, everything's awesome. You know, we've got our Mai Tais, our all-inclusive resort. Everything's a lot of fun. And for the person who lives in the small place, so-called small place, it's totally boring, including you, the tourist, <laughs> right? So <laughs> there's that tension there between the novel and the tired. And so to write that story, I had to get away from the novelty and to put myself in the perspective of the people who lived in that country. So the story is told from the perspective of the sibling who didn't get to leave Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And so she's looking at this Vietnamese American returning the rich foreigner. And of course the rich foreigner is not as rich as she seems. It's a classic narrative of the person in disguise, especially the person from the new world or America, Mm -hmm. where all this mythology is built around who goes back to Vietnam and the Vietnamese discover that all is not as it seems in the land of the American dream.
2: I don't know if you've noticed, but I haven't mentioned The Sympathizer. I am assuming that a lot of you will have questions about The Sympathizer, so I'm going to continue on a couple other little paths first. One is you're a scholar as well as a novelist, a scholar of a number of different things, war and memory among them. And I, of course, I started my life as a scholar as well, and one of the guiding principles of LARB was always that it's such a shame that so much great interesting work is happening in academia and so little of it is readable (laughs) and so so how can we make that stuff available to people and nothing ever dies is a great book on war and memory and i recommend it it's not hard to read it's a beautifully written book but you also have done academic articles Mm -hmm. in academies Mm -hmm. you can speak Mm -hmm. academies as well Mm -hmm. and i found when i tried to make the switch from academic writing to writing for a general audience, that I had been kind of professionally deformed and had kind of lost my ability to understand how to talk to people in any other language than the one I had acquired in graduate school. Did you have trouble making that move yourself?
3: Okay, so I don't know how many of you know anything about academics and everything, but basically all the stereotypes you have are true about academia. And, you know, I mean, I feel... It's unfortunate, but true. Yeah, I mean, I think basically as an academic, it's like every other kind of bureaucracy and discipline. You spend a decade or two being immersed in it. And then once you're done doing that, it's really hard to speak another language. You know, it's really hard to break out of the culture that you're in. And so I feel a little bit of sympathy for that. But at a certain point, I also feel you're responsible. You can't keep blaming other people for your issues. So a lot of academics know that they cannot speak another language besides academies. They know they have a small audience. They know they have a comfort zone, but they won't do anything to break out of it. And those of us that do make these kinds of efforts to acknowledge that academia does something wonderful, which it does, most people don't want to spend 20 years of their lives delving into archives. But that work is crucial for doing things like finding out facts and truths. Okay, so we need academics for that. But because of that training, academics have a really hard time talking to normal people. But it's our obligation, at least for some of us, to do it. But when we Mm -hmm. do, we don't get any rewards for it unless you get the Pulitzer Prize, but that, that's not that a fair does, standard. That does help. The whole people up too. <laughs> you know, and honestly, when I wrote The Sympathizer, I had been keeping my writing secret from my fellow academics for a long time because I thought they're not going to understand. And it's true, they didn't understand. Because mm-hmm. when The Sympathizer came out, people were like, oh, you wrote a novel. That's nice. And then it won The Pulitzer, and people were like, why aren't you a full professor yet? I was like, because you didn't give me a promotion based on the novel. You didn't think it was worthy enough. So it's that kind of a catch-22. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's really up to yeah. us to break out. But when we do it, we recognize that we have to become independent actors and that we're not gonna get rewards from within academia. So it's a really difficult situation that academics are in when they actually want to be able to speak Mm -hmm. to non-academics.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to a conversation between LARB's editor-in-chief Tom Lutz and author Viet Thanh Nguyen.
2: It's so tempting. Like one of the one of the concepts that you bring up in uh, Nothing Ever Dies is Paul Ricoeur's notion of enlightened forgetting. Right. Once you have that concept, once you've read Ricoeur and you've got that concept, then you you can just say it to everybody else that has that concept, yeah. and you're done, yeah. right? But if you're talking to people who don't have not read Ricoeur, which is uh, I assume most <laughs> everyone, yeah, in the world, um, then you then you need to explain it. You need to right. work through it. You, know, right. you need to build. You know, need to earn it, right? right? But it is a Great concept. It's a really interesting right. concept.
3: Uh, so Public Core wrote one of the most incredible books I've ever read called Memory, History, Forgetting, which is a thousand pages on memory, history, and forgetting.
2: And we and read I, it so you don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> and I
3: only understood like maybe half to two-thirds, you know, which... But, you know, there's something, again, going back to the beauty of academia, there's something about plowing through that and the difficulties that really mm-hmm. transforms your mind yes. when you're wrestling with someone else's really deep thinking. And the challenge with the term like enlightened forgetting, like you're saying, is, it's like IED. Okay? So IED, improvised explosive device. That's jargon too. It's a, it's, a, it's a popularized jargon that we now, many of us have heard. Although apparently not the uh, editors of a recent magazine article <laughs> where IED appeared as IUD <laughs> and they had to print a retraction. Oh, we meant IED instead. Okay. So every bureaucracy has its own jargon, right? Um, and so you're right that there's a reason for the jargon to exist because it's simpler when you're inside the bureaucracy to say IED, or to say DP, or I don't know what other term exists in your, in your individual fields. But when you're speaking to people who are not in the field, you have to explain. You have to narrate. And so what jargon does, is not, it's not just shorthand, jargon actually, the problem with it is that it prevents us from thinking. So when academics trot out the jargon like enlightened forgetting or deconstruction or whatever, they assume everybody knows this which is great for making the conversation move along faster, but it means that people don't have to think anymore about why they use these terms. So now even Woody Allen can use deconstructing Harry, in, you know, in his movie, Deconstructing Harry, which has nothing to do with the original intent. So it's our obligation to translate these terms and to put them into stories and to narrate them so that people understand what something like enlightened forgetting is. And just briefly, what Ricor means by this is he wants to know when is it right and just to forget? We have to forget. Terrible things have happened, but we have to forget to live and to move on. Unfortunately, most of the forgetting that we do is not enlightened. We, we, we have plenty of evidence of this in this country. Let's not think about slavery or genocide or colonization and pretend that we've forgotten. And in Ricoeur's argument, what this means is, history will come back to bite us in the ass because we actually have not dealt with the past. Enlightened forgetting is when we have fully confronted the past acknowledged it, atoned for it, told stories about it, embedded it into our contemporary understanding, then we can move on. But it's very difficult to get to that point.
2: Yeah, and in the, in the meantime, before that point, um, you say at one point that the, the, the millions and millions of, of lives lost cry out for commemoration, for consecration, and even, you say, if you believe in ghosts, for consolation. And there's a thread of uh, discourse about ghosts and Mm -hmm. about the undead Mm -hmm. that runs through all of your books. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you? Um,
3: I think anybody who's lived through a traumatic history deals with ghosts and at the very least with uh, absent presences. That's That's a jargonistic term too. And what it means is that there's something missing in your life that you may or may not be explicitly aware, aware of, but it continues to haunt you. And you may not be aware of that haunting either until again, history comes back. So my personal example of that is, as I mentioned, you know, we had, uh, I had an adopted sister and uh, she was left behind when we fled from Vietnam. And I was four years old, so I had no living memory of her, but my parents had one photograph of her, which is a black and white wallet-sized photograph. And so I grew up aware of this one photograph of this young woman, she was a teenager, knowing that we had left her behind, knowing her name and knowing absolutely nothing else. And to me, this felt in retrospect, like the absent presence. Like there was somebody missing in our family. There was a haunting in our family. No one would talk about her. That's a ghost, Mm -hmm. even though she was alive, Mm -hmm. right? And of course I knew many people and many families and many, many, many stories of people who had really lost people, you know, to prison, to re-education camps, to war to the, the experience of fleeing the country and, 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 and being lost along the way. And every Vietnamese household that I would go to would have these black and white photographs of the people who had been left behind. And these were ghosts, these were all absent presences. So I grew up with a sense of being haunted by the past in a very personal, intimate way. And then looking out at the actual landscape of the rest of the country in the United States, knowing that many Americans, uh, and us collectively as a country, we were also haunted by this past mm-hmm. of the of the Vietnam War uh, the most immediate haunting but of course the further we go back in our history the more ghosts the more absent presences we see the further back that we go and they're always waiting there to be to be reactivated you know so when charlottesville happened it's like oh the civil war is not over yet it was an absent presence it was a ghost ready to be reanimated ready to be brought back to life and there's so many of these still waiting for us because we haven't dealt with the past mm-hmm.
2: yet you know um i read uh somewhere that you have done 75 articles and op-eds since uh, in the, in these last 4 years mm. and sat for 200 interviews mm. so i just want to know is this the best one
3: you know you, you- <laughs> You did one of the early ones at at, at Chevalier's Books, by the way, who are also selling books tonight, Mm -hmm. and it was actually one of the best ones. Absolutely. (laughs) So, I mean, I I judge interviewers, too. you passed the test, Tom. Okay. We share a lot in common because, like you said, you're a scholar and a Mm -hmm. novelist and and a travel writer as well, so I share some of those. Aspects. Yeah, and we're weirdos in the
2: academy. Absolutely, but it seems to me you have really taken to this role as a public intellectual. I mean, the, the idea of the public intellectual mm-hmm. is thrown around in academia mm-hmm. quite a bit. Layla is one. Uh, we have we have a number of uh, uh, John Weiner's one. Uh, Jody Armour is one. We, we have a, a number of them uh, with us tonight, but I feel like you've really taken this new job, it's a mm-hmm. voluntary job, mm-hmm. to heart and are doing wonderful things with it. Uh, did this surprise you that this was part going to be part of your life um, moving forward?
3: Well, you know, what happened was, when I went to college, I was doing the same stuff. You know, I, I went to Berkeley as an undergraduate. Best thing that ever happened to me transformed me intellectually. The moment I stepped foot on the Berkeley campus, I was immediately radicalized within, like, 10 weeks of arriving in Berkeley I was arrested twice you know all that all the good stuff it's all true about Berkeley you know but but that that was that I was an English major and an ethnic studies major and back then the idea was not public intellectual the idea was organic intellectual oh, right. yep. you know I had a very marxist education all that kind of stuff and and the you know my 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 personal passion was this idea that I could become a writer who had a public purpose so I was never interested in being the writer for who did art for art's sake I wanted to be the writer who was publicly engaged and so I did that my entire life. But mm-hmm. the point, the, the issue is no one cared. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you win the Pulitzer Prize and people are like, oh, we care about your opinions. So do you want to get published in <laughs> the New York Times, et cetera? I was like, of course. Um, but in other words, it didn't transform um, what I was doing. It just, to gave use you a horrible. New outlets. Yeah. I, I like that term better than branding or platform because mm-hmm. that's an that's a unfortunate language that gets mm-hmm. used. But so once the opportunity existed, then I had to take advantage mm-hmm. of it because I still believe it's true that writers can be engaged, obviously, in Los Angeles, we have to take this with a grain of salt because in Los Angeles, when I say that I'm a writer, I have to realize no one cares that you're a writer in Los Angeles, especially if you're a writer of fiction. But that's, that helps to keep you humble, but nevertheless, there's an opportunity there yeah. to speak out, and I feel it's necessary for us for us that we when we have passions to speak out when we have, whenever we have the opportunity to do so
2: great we, we I, I want to turn it to the sympathizer next and uh, and your questions uh, I did I did want to mention that you have a new book that got published yesterday yeah okay which, which people may not know about
3: uh, yes uh, the first children's book I've ever done and it's entitled chicken of the sea and briefly it's about um, bored chickens on the farm who decide to run away and become pirates uh, and to, and in case you think that's strange I did I have I take no credit for it it was my five-year-old son who wrote the comic book, Chicken of the Sea, and we put it, I put it on Facebook, and it turns out an editor who's a Facebook friend saw it and said, is this for real? Can we publish this? And I said, of course. I never miss an opportunity to make money off my son. It happens so rarely. Uh, and so um, he, the whole plot is his. And what I did was I wrote 40 lines of dialogue, which include very high highfalutin allusions to Hamlet and um, um heart of darkness but if you're six years old you don't need to be aware of that okay <laughs> um and then we we, we found uh, and then i asked t Bui, who had, had illustrated a children's book that he had read a different pond and t Boy did a beautiful book called the best we could do which you should all read comic book memoir that was uh, shortlisted for the national book critic circle award she said she was too busy to do the book but she said i have a 12 year old son who's very talented so Hien, her son, did the illustrations, and he did the coloring, and the final product is this beautiful book called Chicken of the Sea. We debuted it yesterday at Romans to a, a, a standing-room-only audience, um, so I'm very proud of my six-year-old. And if you go to one of our launches or events, he will sign it, and he will do a customized illustration for you.
2: Yeah. Of of a chicken?
3: If you're lucky, of a pig butt. But yes, he, chickens <laughs> are the, the normal thing here. Yeah.
2: So... Uh, Albert had a question about, the, about uh, the sympathizer that maybe we could start us off. Are we gonna pass a microphone around or are you gonna?
3: I'm gonna go mobile if I okay, can. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, Albert.
2: Uh, my question, Viet, is um, the, the central premise or, or one of the central premises uh, of this central character uh, whose fatal flaw is that he can see things from all sides or from several sides. Uh, where did, what inspired that idea?
3: Uh, So that is the only autobiographical aspect of the novel. You know, because if you read the novel, the the sympathizer is a a womanizer, an alcoholic, ultimately a murderer. I can't take credit for none of those things. Um, But when I was growing up in San Jose, I was growing up in a very Vietnamese household, very Vietnamese refugee community. So when I was in my parents' household, I would feel like I was an American spying on these Vietnamese people doing these strange things, eating these strange foods, speaking the strange language. And then when I would go out into the rest of the, of, the, of the city, I would feel like I was a Vietnamese spying on these strange Americans and their strange foods and their strange customs. So I always felt like I was a spy. So I took that very emotional, personal aspect of myself of, of, of always feeling like a person with two faces and a spy. And then I just put it into a much more dramatic plot with a much more interesting person. Yeah. All right. I, 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 I can roam as far as my, uh, my cord will let me, but I want to make sure I get see the people in the back as well. John has a question.
2: I, I read in your Twitter feed, your excellent Twitter feed, that you have just finished the draft of a new novel. Can you tell us anything about it?
3: So um, I'm giving nothing away by saying that the sympathizer lives at the end of the novel. And you find him, he's on a refugee boat leaving Vietnam. And so some people thought that he must be going to the United States because where else would you go if you're fleeing a communist country? And in fact, he ends up in Paris uh, of the early 1980s. And it continues his misadventures in Paris. It involves a lot of crime, drugs, violence, sex, rock and roll music, all the good stuff. And a lot of satire of the French, unfortunately. So in The Sympathizer, I set out to offend everybody, including Americans, I succeeded. And in this novel, I tried to um, uh, offend the French, and I think they're easily offended. So we will, we will, we will see is about that. that. Is a pub date? Um, I, I turned in the full draft last week. Hopefully, we'll finish the edits in a couple months. If I do it fast enough, we'll publish it before the elections. If I don't do it, we'll publish it in twenty twenty one. Yeah. Other questions. In the back, I don't think the core is going to reach, so you have to shout it out. That, that was a very good and complicated question, but I think the core of it was when I'm writing these stories, am I trying to capture the emotions of the subjects who are undergoing the actual incidents or the emotion of the writer who's who's going to have to, to do it, right? I mean, it's a little bit of both. Um, so to go with the example of the story from The Refugees where I heard it from a real person, uh, I did not try to interview her and get her to cry and break down and, and, and find out those kinds of things. So in that respect, I was, I'm much more interested in my emotions as a writer because the whole truth, and maybe Tom knows who said this, but no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader? Yeah, I
2: don't
3: know. I don't know, some famous writer said (laughs) this, right? And it's true because the whole idea, the the whole sort of stereotypical Hemingway idea that you have to go out into the world and seek experience before you can become a writer is only, I think, partially true because the real experience that matters is what happens inside. So if you don't have emotional capacity to feel things, to feel deep things, it's gonna be very hard to put that into your, to, to your fiction and get readers to care emotionally about what's happening. And so that's why I think for a lot of writers, they become better writers the older they get, when they get more mature, when they're able to deal with their emotions in a different way. So I don't think I could have written The Sympathizer, for example, when I was 25. I didn't have the emotional maturity to deal with many of the kinds of issues that, I'm, that, I, that the novel approaches. I had to, and it's not that I, I went through any of them. I didn't go through war or torture or any of these kinds of things, but 20 or 30 years of living, of engaging with people, even in a very mundane way, allows you to think about certain things like love and loss and loyalty and all of these kinds of things. And then the task of the writer is to feel those things and then to translate them and, and put them into another character. Frank. Okay, so uh, the question is from Frank Snep. He wrote, a, 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 the reason I made the CIA joke is that he was in the American embassy at the, in the fall of Saigon, okay? And you can see him in documentaries. Or were you in the, the Ken Burns and Lynn Novick documentary uh, about Vietnam? And, I, and that's the first time I saw you was in another documentary earlier than that. So the question to paraphrase is, I think, how do I, in the sympathizer, give credence to Vietnamese perspectives and either acknowledge or, or not deal with American traumas, like the My Lai Massacre, without demonizing the Americans. Okay, so how do you centralize a Vietnamese perspective without demonizing Americans, right? Okay, so the the answer to that is by demonizing Vietnamese people. I mean, mean, that's a short answer. Okay, so the reason why I say that is because Americans prefer to be the heroes of their own story. But if they can't be the heroes of their own story, they wanna be the villains of their own story as long as you are the stars, right? Right, okay? And so that's why in the American genre of the Vietnam War story, the movie, the Hollywood version, it's really interesting because Americans generally come off badly, but that's okay because the drama is still theirs. So instead of dealing with their, virtu- their virtuousness, you're dealing with their, their Shakespearean drama of being the bad guys. But as long as you're being paid $20 million, that's fine. Okay. So the, that puts us, us as in the so-called minorities or others, whomever have come here to this country because of some accident of American foreign policy, into a difficult situation. Because the easiest way to get published or have our stories told is to play the virtuous victim and to fill in the gap of the American story. This is called multiculturalism. Okay, so that's our opening, is to is to peddle our, our grief and, and, and play on American, white American guilt, all right? And so I decided, being a scholar, as Tom brought up, knowing full well how this dynamic works, I was not going to do that. And so I looked at a film like Apocalypse Now, and I said, okay, so Francis Ford Coppola made this classic of American film by treating the demons of the American psyche. And that's, even though, I, even though I find, I admire the film, I find it very problematic in regards to the Vietnamese people, I thought, that is the right thing to do. And so for me, I thought, I don't want to write a novel in which I just talk about how, how poor and how heroic and how nice the Vietnamese people are, and let me introduce you to the customs of my rural people whom you have violated. You no, know, my point was, this is our story. Three million Vietnamese people died during this war, 58,000 Americans, so the 50, that's a huge tragedy for Americans, but you gotta put it into context. But if I'm gonna foreground the Vietnamese story, I'm gonna foreground something that I wrote about in the sequel, in the line in the sequel, The Committed is the people who most hate Vietnamese people are other Vietnamese people. You know, that's our drama. And so that's what The Sympathizer is about by foregrounding the good and the evil that Vietnamese people have done to themselves and to others. And so that's the response. There's no need to demonize Americans. It's just that the sympathizer puts Americans on the, on the sidelines of the story, which is highly offensive to many Americans. You know, it's, 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 it's worse to be marginalized than it is to be demonized as long as you're the central demon of the story. And so that's why I think uh, for a certain portion of American readers, they have a hard time dealing with the novel because number one, it has some offensive things to say about Americans, but number two, they're not in the center of the story. And so any reader who approaches a novel has to confront another culture or people's subjectivity. And that, for many Americans, is really weird because they're used to having the world brought to them one way or another. How has the book been received in Vietnam? Well, the book has been... Has a publisher, has been translated into Vietnamese, but is not allowed to be published in Vietnam. So it's sort of in limbo right now. So every time I see something like, "Oh, Colson Whitehead just got his novel translated into Vietnamese," I'm like, "God damn it!" You know, <laughs> Colson deserves it. It's true. But I wish my novel could be translated into, and published in Vietnamese too. And the reason for that is obviously. Um, we'll, I'll give you another anecdote. Um, I got a hate mail a year or two ago, and funnily enough, hate mail usually arrives as snail mail. I don't know why, but usually people want to write it out and put it in the post office to me. And this gentleman was an American veteran of the Vietnam War, an educated man, he's a doctor, a dentist. And he said, uh, I, read, I, I read your novel, and um, you seem to love the communists so much, why don't you just go back to Vietnam and take your son with you? I thought, you didn't finish reading my novel! <laughs> because if you, if you actually read the novel to the end, you know, the whole last quarter is like a serious condemnation of communism and the, and the Communist Party, which is why it's not allowed to be uh, translated and published in Vietnam. But I go around the country doing a lot of speaking engagements in universities, and there's almost always Vietnamese foreign interna- international students from Vietnam there. And you know they come up to me and they say, everybody's reading your book in Vietnam. And I'm like, everybody must be a very small crowd. But nevertheless, in their social circle, the ones who can read English are finding access to the book. Um, which is sort of in the gray market, and their reception has been very positive because I think the story that the sympathizer tells is a story that's not really allowed to be told in Vietnam. So the way that the Communist Party has very cleverly dealt with history in Vietnam is to make it so boring, no one wants to deal with it. So the younger generation is not interested in the past because their only exposure has been through official education and boring you know, state-sponsored movies about the history. So they just don't want to deal with that state-sponsored version. So then to get this other version that actually talks about the good and the evil that the Vietnamese people have done has been a novel experience for them. Uh,
2: follow-up on that? Yeah. How has it been received in Orange County?
3: How has it been received in Orange County? Uh, the context there is that Orange County is the heart of the resistance against communism in Vietnam. I haven't... That's a good question. I have appeared in Irvine, for example, but Irvine is sort of like the liberal part of Orange County. Or um, I have not dared to appear in Little Saigon no. itself. <laughs> so I, there, When I published the book, I knew, because I wrote it from the perspective of a communist spy, that there would be many Vietnamese Americans who would refuse to read the novel simply for that reason. And that was, that was actually what happened. Yeah. Should we do one more? One more in there? As a public intellectual, I put this in quotation marks. So you said this, and Tom said it, not me. What are the, what are the things that I think I find most urgent to address right now? Um, So, for example, the article that probably drew the most attention that I wrote recently was a cover article for Time Magazine last Thanksgiving, which was on America, the the beautiful and the brutal. I mean, these two very contradictory aspects of our culture, our nation, our history. And that was really interesting to write that because it, I I might write for the New York Times, too, but the New York York Times basically goes to liberals, all right, Time Magazine I went home to San Jose and my high school friend said, hey, I subscribed to Time Magazine and we read your article. And this is a guy who would never read my, my books. So I thought, that's urgent. You know, that there is an audience out there that can read to and listen to these kinds of arguments. And I went to West Point soon after that article came out and I had to give a lecture to a thousand plebs. and I was like terrified. And uh, beforehand, two cadets took me around, they were English majors. And I said, look, uh, you guys read the Time Magazine article, should I talk about this? Because that's what I'm gonna talk about. And I said, yes, you have to talk about this to these cadets. And so that's what I did. And 1,000 cadets, they come from all kinds of persuasions and regions of the country and so on. They, I don't know if they agreed with me, but they gave me a standing ovation, so they listened. And I think that's the obligation that a so-called public intellectual has if we're public, we can't just keep talking to our own niche of the world. We have to put ourselves out there and deal with the hot button issues and believe that we can have a dialogue or a conversation with people who come from very different kinds of places. And so that's the most urgent work, I think, for me publicly, is to write, these, write, write, write what I believe in and put it into the venues where most, the most people can get access to it, whether it's Time or West Point or Idaho, where I went to lecture a few weeks ago. That's urgent. The other urgent thing is the personal. Probably the, the, the New York Times op-ed that I get the most responses to is an op-ed I wrote about losing my son to reading. When he was about four years old, he started to, you know, three or four, he started to read. And that was like I was very proud as a parent. But then part of me felt very melancholic because I thought this is the first sign of his independence, and eventually one day he won't need me to read to him anymore. And so that was a very personal essay, and it got a lot of personal response because I think that is something that many people who have kids have felt. And so that's still important work for me to do too. So, you know, I just published this book with my son and with an eye to monetization, I think I got to write an op-ed about this and put it in the New York Times and talk about what it means to create something with your six-year-old child. Because I think these issues are crucial to all of us, and of course the danger for all of us who happen to be so-called minorities is we're just gonna be stuck talking about our niche issue, whatever that happens to be. These are crucial issues, but nevertheless, we're full-fledged human beings with many other concerns besides whatever personal trauma or tragedy that we have. And um, it's crucial that that's part of our work is to both address the central issues of the country and also to address our own humanity as well. Thank you so much, everybody. Support Los Angeles Review of Books. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.